Thank you, worship team. I pray that your Christmas uh, celebration was a, a bright one this holiday season, but we do, uh, do want to also acknowledge the fact that it's not always easy to go through a time when so many other people are joyous and can celebrate the great blessings of their family. When you have struggles of your own, your family's not what you want it to be, when there are causes for depression and darkness. And so let us be especially attuned in to our brothers and sisters this holiday season and recognize that it's not easy for everyone to be merry. But the greatest joy we have in the season is not in reconciled families. The greatest joy that we have in the season is not through stable finances. It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we're going to put our eyes and, and hearts on him this morning. Uh, that we might have our heads lifted up and that we might have our countenances brightened by the wonderful glory that Christ has come and has taken on flesh to dwell with us. Over the centuries, we've had several men and women that God has blessed with remarkable minds and hearts who have contributed to our understanding of Scripture, who have blessed us with, uh, with good works that have uh, helped us to see more clearly who Christ is and how we should understand the Word of God and how it proclaims Him. Uh, one of those men is named Anselm. Anselm lived from 133 A.D. to 1109. He is one of the greatest philosophical minds of the church. He's a very gifted theologian. And he was one of the sparks that catalyzed what came to be known as the scholastic movement, a, a period of time in which the church really grew in depth in its systematic theologies and its understanding of Scripture and how to understand the Word as a whole. Anselm's model and I'm going to butcher this in the Latin for sure, so get ready for a laugh. Fides coerens intellectum, which translates into English, was faith-seeking understanding. That was Anselm's motto for his life. Faith-seeking understanding. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. It's not to mean that understanding is superior to faith, and therefore we should try to get to understanding so that we could abandon faith. That's not what Anselm meant at all. Anselm was trying to help us to understand that faith, that being driven by love and respect for the God who is beyond us, who is so difficult for us to comprehend, faith should help us to strive all the more passionately for an understanding and appreciation for God that is ever-growing and ever-widening and coming into ever-greater clarity. So we must humbly approach this God who is great and mighty, knowing that our limited knowledge cannot attain to Him. It is only by faith that His great love and revelation can show us who He is. That's the only way that we can truly understand God. So we are going to take up that motto this morning that we, by faith, seek the understanding of who Christ is, the Savior who was born in a manger so many years ago. And that's why we've been really dwelling on the nature and the character of Jesus these last few weeks. God loved the world to such an extent that He personally broke through the barrier of sin that had divided humanity from God in order to reconcile His people to Himself. How special is that, church? How unexpected and undeserved is the incarnation of Jesus. And what an amazing honor it is that in order to accomplish the great task of redemption, Jesus went so far as to add a human nature like ours to His divine nature, that we might be able to relate to Him, that we might be able to see in His real life the manifestation of true faith 
and obedience to God's law. In this, the the last installment of our series on that hypostatic union, the joining of Christ's human nature to His divine nature, we're going to consider the question, to what extent did Jesus go in order to be near to us? This Savior that we worship today has been granted many powerful and meaningful titles, but one name in particular has a special significance to the Christmas season, and that is the name described in Isaiah 7.14, which is quoted throughout the Gospels. One example is Matthew 1.23, where Matthew writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Considering what we have learned about the hypostatic union, about the fact that in Jesus we see one person who possesses simultaneously two natures, the divine nature of God and a perfected human nature. When we think about this hypostatic union, we can begin to understand that the title Emmanuel carries more than a geographical meaning to it. Surely Jesus came to dwell with us in a locational sense, but he is no longer physically here, is he? Does that mean he is no longer Emmanuel? Having been resurrected after his crucifixion, he spent 40 days revealing himself to the brethren and proving that his resurrection was not just a hoax, that he was indeed alive. And then Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But the title Emmanuel should actually be understood to describe more than where Jesus is. It describes what he is. Jesus has joined to his divine nature a truly human nature, not only for the 33 or so years that he walked on this earth, but for the rest of eternity. Christ will be the powerful God-man. This morning we will rejoice in the fact that Jesus' incarnation was not a cameo appearance. He didn't just pop in for a short amount of time. He didn't just add a nature to himself to accomplish a task and then shed that skin. He is Jesus, always God, and for the rest of eternity, at the very same time, man. We're going to look first at the earthly evidence of his enduring humanity, and then at heavenly evidence that Jesus still possesses a true human nature. And then finally, we will consider how important it is to the role that Jesus plays as our mediator, That he was not only a man at one time in history, but is truly man forevermore. So let's take a minute and thank the Lord God for what we will learn in his word today. God, we thank you for your grace. It is amazing grace to us. Apart from it, we are blind. And so we ask for your enlightenment this morning. Help us, God, to listen carefully. Help us to apply these things to our life. Help us to be good shepherds to our little ones as they sit in service with us and hear these great truths. Help us, Lord God, to encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as we further discuss these things. If we have questions that are not answered in the sermon today, I pray that we would seek out answers by approaching the elders or by approaching one another and speaking more of these things or going into the Word itself and trying to find greater clarification in the revelation that you have given to us. For truly, God, in your Word, we see the clearest picture of who you are. And so we thank you for all these things and we ask for your guidance as we learn and as I preach in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's word has given to us 40 days worth of evidence that Christ's human nature did not 
get destroyed upon the cross. Luke 23 ends with the body of a crucified Jesus being taken down from the cross at Calvary, being laid hastily in a tomb, a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, who had quietly followed Jesus up to that point, a good and righteous man. In accordance to the prophecies of Old Testament, no one had ever been laid in this particular tomb. It was unused. And so the Sabbath was very near at hand, a time when they did not like to dirty their hands with this kind of work. So there was a great haste in putting Christ's body into the ground before the Sabbath arrived. That means there wasn't enough time to properly prepare and anoint His body. The Hebrew people really cared about the vessel that God gave to us. And so when somebody died, they treated that body with respect in laying it to rest. Nevertheless, several women who had traveled with Jesus from Galilee and His ministries and had followed Him to Jerusalem were present and mourning the death of Christ when His body was taken down and they watched it be put into the tomb that belonged to Joseph. So they knew where he was laid to rest. Those same women from Galilee went to where they were staying. Uh, They rested on the Sabbath, according to Scripture. And then after the Sabbath was complete, that next morning they came to see if perhaps the soldiers would allow them into the tomb so they might give dignity to the body of Christ and anoint it properly, wrapping it in spices and going through the traditional rituals of the Hebrew people in preparing a body we see here in Luke 24, 2 through 6, what unfolds as these women approach where the body of Jesus was laid to rest. It says, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Angels had removed the stone. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That description helps us to understand that these are more than men, that these are indeed angelic helpers. Verse 5, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? This is a place of burial. Though Joseph's tomb had never been used before, there were probably other tombs in the vicinity where bodies were buried. And so he says, why do you come to this place where bodies who have lost their souls are laid to rest so that they might decompose over time? Why do you come to this place where the dead are laid, seeking someone who is not dead, but who is risen? He is not here. He, meaning specifically the body of Jesus Christ, is not here. Christ's physical vessel is no longer buried. It is missing. Why? Because Jesus rose physically from death. It is not a spiritual resurrection that we celebrate each Easter. It is not a symbolic resurrection. It is a literal, physical resurrection of the human body of Jesus Christ that proves to us His power over sin and over death. So Easter was not just simply Jesus stating, See, my human nature may be dead, but my divine nature still exists. No, it was Jesus' physical human body, along with his human soul, which raised up from the grave on the third day. Jesus needed to do more than die for us to save us from the curse of sin. He needed to conquer death for us. As you read the gospel accounts, as well as the testimony of the book of Acts and Paul's word about these things in his letters, 
Jesus made it very clear by his multiple appearances that he was not only alive, he was very physically alive. Turn with me for a moment to John's account in chapter 20. Nearing the end of John's book in verse 17, we see that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. When he spoke with Mary, he had to tell her, do not cling to me, which indicates to us that she was so stricken to see this dear friend of hers that she wrapped her arms around her, clinged to him physically. She said, he says to her, do not cling to me, but instructs her rather to go and announce to the other disciples and followers of Jesus that she had seen him. Then later that evening, Jesus appears to the disciples who were still trying to come to terms with the idea that perhaps Christ was alive. They didn't know if they could believe it or not. They didn't know if they dare to believe it. They had heard the words of Mary, but perhaps she was mistaken. Perhaps she was in an emotional state and and thought she saw something she didn't see. And so they're locked behind closed doors. They are hiding from the authorities who may perhaps want to question them for their connection to Jesus when all of a sudden Jesus appears to them. He shows them that he is indeed alive, But they were not all in the room at that moment. Thomas was not present for Christ's first visit there. And so when he returned, the others said, We've seen Christ in the flesh. He is alive. But for eight difficult days, poor Thomas could not believe it. For fear of having his heart crushed, he refused to accept the fact that Jesus was alive unless he would have the opportunity to see for himself and to touch Christ with his own hands. And so here we see the faithful and tender heart of Jesus in John 20, starting in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be a disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas needed physical evidence, or so he thought. Christ was willing to give that to him. Even though to touch Christ, to see the holes in his hands is not necessary for us to stand in true belief that he did what he said he could do. None of us has had the opportunity to see the risen Christ, but other faithful men testified to the reality that he did not die and then disappear. Christ died and rose again physically and is human today. The evidence abounds. Physical evidence, bodily evidence. Jesus was careful to show Thomas and the disciples that his resurrection was a material resurrection. It was not just some sort of spiritual victory that he won, but his physical body continued to exist. The Apostle Paul shares this piece of history with his Corinthian brothers. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive. Why is that an important detail? Because people could go and talk to them still. These eyewitnesses could still be consulted and interviewed to see if they truly did see the risen Jesus, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, Christ's half-brother, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, says Paul. So according to this history of the time that Christ spent in the 40 days after his resurrection, how did he rise? Without question, Jesus rose bodily. He rose in a glorified human state. He was no longer subject to death in that physical body. Some of the laws of nature no longer seem to have bound Jesus, but in so much as human nature is concerned, Jesus was still in full possession of that human nature. And this is why in John 21, when Jesus appears again to the disciples in order to forgive Peter for his massive failure on the day of Christ's crucifixion, Jesus made breakfast with them. He broke bread. They ate some fish together. This is why the good shepherd of Psalm 23 prepares a meal at the table in the presence of our enemies because one day when we attain to heaven and glory, brothers and sisters, we will feast with our king. He will eat alongside us. It is quite clear from scripture that the onus is on the person who claims that Jesus is not human any longer to try to prove their point because scripture is not shameful or bashful at all to say that Christ remains human as we are. If God is no longer physically human as some over the ages have claimed, then what happened to his human body? When did that change? When did he shed this material vessel that he showed to his disciples and to James and to the Apostle Paul after his resurrection? How are we supposed to walk with Christ when we get to heaven if he doesn't have a physical body like we do? How will he return physically to battle Satan on a white horse with a sword in his hand and judge sin if he no longer has a physical body? So much of what we have been shown can only make sense if Jesus is still truly God and simultaneously, remember, as we've been learning, truly man. Now and forevermore. The evidence abounds, friends. And not just in his interactions with those on earth. God's word gives us glimpses of heavenly evidence. In Acts 7, we read of Stephen, who was one of the first of the deacons in the church. Stephen was also not afraid to to preach to people about the risen Jesus. And after declaring to Hebrew countrymen that Christ indeed was the Messiah, they begin to turn upon him. They claim he is blasphemous for declaring Jesus was God in the flesh. And so they begin to stone him. In verse 54 of Acts 7, The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. What else did he see? And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. It's amazing what Stephen reveals to us here. He sees the glory of God the Father because God the Father is spirit. He does not have a body, per se. But he clearly sees God the Son standing in bodily form. And he uses the title that ties Christ 
to our human nature. He calls him the son of man in that instance. And so Jesus here from an earthly vantage point can be seen in heaven by Stephen as possessing a human body. Jesus also appears to the beloved disciple John in the book of Revelation chapter 1. He puts his hand on the shoulder of John to console him. Verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, granted, if you read the rest of that account, there is some symbolism going on there. Uh, Or at very least, John is struggling to place what he is witnessing into words as he sees this heavenly image of the Savior. But what John beholds is Jesus in a human body, albeit a glorified human body. So let's just take a brief moment to talk about what does it mean to have a glorified body? Have you spent much time thinking about how your body will change When you get to heaven, there's no shortage of speculation about this. People love to to guess and to wonder about what our bodies might be like when we get to heaven. And I don't have all the answers for that. What age will our body be? Will it be the age when we died? Uh, Will we be kind of a perfected version of ourselves? Will we be in perfect health? Or will we look the same as we do today? There's not a lot of detail written about the glorified state in Scripture. So God has not decided it is necessary for brothers and sisters in Christ, to have a detailed understanding of that yet. But our most insightful passage is found in 1 Corinthians 15. So please take a moment to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 in your scriptures. We will look again at this when we get to the end of 1 Corinthians, but I have no doubt that that will be quite some time from now. So let's take a sneak peek at 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 35 of chapter 15. The Apostle Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And so stop there for a minute. Think about this. Paul speaks about our death and resurrection here in agricultural terms. So he's using a sort of a metaphor. When you plant a seed in the ground, it's not going to look exactly like the thing that comes out of the ground, right? It's, it's only a kernel. It's a small connection to that thing that will one day grow up and be what it is. And so he speaks of our bodies in this way. Our death is similar in that the resurrection body we receive will be like the one that was laid to rest in the ground, but will exceed it in its quality and its productivity. The bodies we currently have are corrupted by sin and subject to the curse of death. But our resurrected bodies will be fit for an eternity in heaven. And so continuing to read in verse 42, Paul says, So is it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So your body will no longer be perishable when you are glorified. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the dust of uh, the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, who is the man of heaven? Jesus Christ. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so to have the best idea of what we can expect our glorified bodies to be like, we should observe the resurrected body of Jesus, how he uses it. He speaks, he walks, he eats. He is able to be veiled. Remember when he walked along the road to Emmaus with two of his companions who didn't recognize him? He didn't appear the same. So perhaps our glorified bodies will have the ability to look different at different times. It seems to be unhindered by physical boundaries. Jesus, though the door was locked and sealed, he appeared to the other disciples. So perhaps the physical laws of nature will not have the same kind of bearing on our resurrection glory bodies. So here it is important to emphasize that Jesus has not ceased to bear human nature. Our nature now will be different when we are glorified, but it will match the glorified nature of the resurrected Jesus. What was sown or put into the ground as perishable will be raised imperishable. We will not be able to do it to die again. It's kind of like double jeopardy. You can't be, you can't be tried twice. We will not be able to die once we are raised from the grave in glory. Our bodies will be sown in dishonor, meaning they will be culpable of, 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 of the sins that we committed in them. But the body that we will be raised with will be washed clean by Christ, will be completely raised in glory. Our bodies that will be put into the ground are sown in weakness. Weakness to sin. Even though we are redeemed right now, we stumble, we fall. We break God's law from time to time. But the new glorified bodies that we have will have no capability, no capacity for sinfulness. The weakness that was in us will be, ra- will be undone and we will be raised in power. So it is important to emphasize that Jesus has not ceased to bear human nature, but the resurrection body which facilitates that nature is in many ways better than the one that came before. So too will we continue to be human, but will bear the image of God through our humanity in a much more complete and pure way than we can currently do so. So the scripture provides post-resurrection evidence that Christ's human nature endures. We have read heavenly evidence of the same truth. And now let us consider the theological importance of this reality. There is a priestly necessity to Christ's eternal human nature. We see this in Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20. The writer of Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. How long does Christ's priestly role last for? Forever, friends. He will not cease to be a high priest on our behalf. The important offices of prophet, priest, and king are all perfectly fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ. He is the very word of God become flesh, declaring the truth prophetically in all that he said and did. Every word of Christ was scripture. He is the priest who intercedes and has made all other priestly intercession obsolete. 
You don't need a human being like myself to go to the Lord for you. Christ can do that for you. He is your high priest. Not that your pastors don't pray for you. We do daily. But you don't need that to interact with God. Christ brings you to the throne boldly. He is the King of Kings who will reign forevermore, never to be dethroned, never to be even challenged. His power is perfect. He reigns in truth and in love. And here in Hebrews 6, we see a reminder that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this Old Testament sign that is given to us, a figure called Melchizedek, to whom Abraham offers tribute in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek was unique in that he held two of the three offices. We don't see other examples of that. In fact, later on you'll uh, read of a King Saul who was king over Israel and tried to do priestly things and God admonished him for it. It actually resulted in him being removed from the kingly position because he had no authority to act as a priest and as a king. But this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, was unique in that he held two of these offices at once. He was at once the priest and at once the king. Some even believe this mysterious figure to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself revealed to Abraham. As a priest is in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus must intercede for us. He must go to the one that we don't have a right to see otherwise. He must make a path for us. He does that through his blood shed for our sins. He does that by suffering as a curse so that the curse that we have entered into through our disobedience to God might be removed from us. Jesus is our perfect high priest. How can flesh and blood draw near to that which is spiritual on our own? Since we don't turn into spirits upon death, as God the Father and God the Spirit have existed eternally as spirit beings, since we don't turn into spirits at death, we will continue to need an intermediary to draw us near to God. Why? Because we don't become gods upon our death. When we enter into heaven, we don't become exactly like what God is. We continue to be the bearers of God's image in human nature. Which brings us back to what we discussed earlier concerning our glorified state. When we die, we will become like our high priest has become for us. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he brings everything under his control. So if Christ maintains his human nature, existing forever, not only as a spirit, but also by means of a physical glorified body, we can expect that our eternal existence will be in a glorified material body as well. You might hear people speculating about what heaven's like. They might say, oh, you know, don't we become angels when we go to heaven? No, we don't. We become like Christ. We obtain a glorified human body and nature. Do we become like demigods? Are we sort of more like God when we go to heaven? No, we don't. We become like Christ in his perfected human nature. But Christ is still also at the same time divine and eternal in nature. Will our limits be different than we have experienced here on earth? It's quite likely because we're not going to be hindered by sin anymore. But we should avoid the tendency to think that we will become some largely different creature when we receive our resurrection bodies. We will be the human beings made in God's image, made to reflect God's 
wonderful qualities that we were always meant to be. So Jesus, having added an enduring human nature to his eternal divine nature, mediates between God and his people, not just now, but forevermore. To close, I want us to consider the lengths to which Jesus went to draw us near to himself by reflecting on the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Our brother Stephen read this as our call to worship. And this is a quotation of Psalms 22 and Isaiah 8. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Think about that, church. Jesus Christ is your Savior. He is your King. But he is not ashamed to call you his brother. He shares a glorified human nature like the one you will gain when you enter into glory with him. Verse 12, it says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a perfect, merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christmas, brothers and sisters, which celebrates this glorious union between God's divine nature and our human nature should not only impact our view of what happened before. It's not just a historical reflection. It should affect the way that we see Christ now, that he is currently on the throne reigning in heaven, that he is at the right hand of the Father in a glorified human body, preparing a place for us to come and join him, that we might be like him in that regard. It should affect our view of tomorrow, of our eternity, that our identity will always be linked to Christ our Savior for the rest of existence. Christ with us, the hope of glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I've preached a little bit shorter by design today. This is the last Sunday of 2020, and there's no doubt that we've gone through a year together that has brought so many changes around us. And so as part of our efforts as elders to help you, church, to deal with and to cope with these changes, we felt that it would be very beneficial this morning to reflect on where you've been and where we are right now as a church and where we're going as we walk forward together into 2021. Looking back on 2020, uh, I don't think any of us could have anticipated the breadth of impact that the coronavirus and our government's response to the virus would have on us. And so by necessity, this has been a year of incremental ingest- adjustments. As we've learned more about what we're dealing with and as the government has changed their stance on things, we've had to be careful to watch and to learn and to refine our approach as we gain wisdom and understanding of what we're dealing with. We have it have as, as a church been somewhat limited this past year. We've not been able to run some of our key ministries. Other ministries have been significantly altered or held back. And so we hope in 2021 to be able to ease back into some of these ministries sooner than later. We have not had as much of a chance to baptize people, 
But we know that salvation is not of our efforts or of our designs or ministries. It is of the Lord. So we will continue to preach the gospel faithfully and reach out to the lost in hopes that maybe in the year to come we'll be able to see more people baptized. But rest assured, church, no one is going to miss out on salvation because of what's going on right now. In fact, I do have great confidence that God will save many by opening their eyes to the things that are going on and to the realities of their mortality through their confrontation with the realities of this virus. We've been blessed to stay on track as a church budget-wise and have been able to lend assistance to some families that are in need in our church and some outside of the church that have asked for help. Our food pantry team has been tremendous in their consistency and their willingness to help those who have great needs in our community. And that has continued to shine light into some lives that are really shrouded in darkness right now. But we've also been challenged to practice God's command in regards to honoring our government. Uh, And so we'd like to, again, explain kind of where we're at and why we're here. God establishes three fundamental institutions in Scripture. He establishes the family. This is established far back in Genesis when God created Adam and he gave to him Eve and the two became one flesh. The family was established and he commanded Adam and Eve to go forth into all the world and to fill it. He's established the state. God ordains governments through which laws are enacted and enforced so that absolute chaos does not ensue in the world and so that the sinfulness of humanity cannot express itself to its fullest. God uses governments, even wicked governments at times, to keep things in check. And God has also established the church, His people together as a body of believers who will do His will and His work and will offer to Him the worship and glory that He deserves. Now, Each has specific responsibilities, the family, the state, and the church. And the authority that is given to them is limited. For example, the family has authority to raise children in the way that they should go. That is not the church's primary responsibility. God gives a mother and a father the responsibility and the tools to help a child be raised up in the way that they should go. Now, granted, the church does well to offer support in that. And we're grateful to support youth. We're grateful to give resources to in our Sunday school classes and our small groups for young people. But that is primarily responsibility of the family. It is not the responsibility of the church. The church has been given different responsibilities. The state has the responsibility to establish borders, to defend us from foreign threats, to wield the sword by enforcing the law. Now, that's an authority given to them by God. That is not the responsibility of the family, right? Moms and dads don't just go out and martial law and punish people they think are breaking God's law. That's not our job as mothers and fathers. We have responsibilities tied to the home, but God has given other responsibilities tied to the state. The church protects and organizes the worship that God has commanded us to give Him as an offering. It is not God's design for secular governments to flex authority over the church and to dictate what is the right way for us as Christians to worship our God. Rome made this error many times over the course of that empire when emperors would try to express their power over the popes and the the bishops that were ruling in, in those days, and it caused all kinds of chaos. We've seen modern examples of this in China, as I shared just a few months ago, that the Christian church in China is really struggling against this communist regime trying to redefine Christianity so that it's easier to control and fit it into their culture and their way of life. When the state oversteps its bounds, something needs to be done. 
Just as when the family oversteps its bounds, something needs to be done. When the church oversteps its bounds, something needs to be done. The other institutions have to correct when one institution goes beyond its boundaries. And so who has jurisdiction over the church, if not the state? The Word of God tells us that God has appointed elders to that responsibility. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. In fact, Caesar himself is subject to God's greater authority. We see that in John 19.11. The responsibility to care for you is first and foremost the good shepherd's responsibility. And he exercises that responsibility by enlisting faithful men who trust him well to be under shepherds and to care for the church as they would their own family and to do so according to the word of God. So we can see that the government's response to this pandemic has encroached well beyond the sphere to which they have been assigned. We have the blessing also of living in a country where we have constitutional rights given to us. And I'm glad to see that at least to some degree, the courts are beginning to acknowledge that to enact these restrictions upon the gatherings of worship is unconstitutional, which has prevented churches from being taken to court and sued over gathering together in times like this. Praise the Lord. But our governments have continued to tell us that for our good and for the good of society as a whole, gathering together to worship God in accordance to the scriptures is a threat to public health and safety. And we have to reject that order because we see Christ as our great head, as the one who truly has authority over us. Now let us remember, friends, that while government is to be honored to the best of our ability, according to Scripture, governments as a whole are in no way as faithful as God is in their leadership. In fact, we have several reasons to question often what our governments that are led by fallible humans and are so very often completely secular in their design and in their motivations. We have reason to question what they say to us. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, speaking to believers in the church, and that the whole world, those who are not of Christ, lies in the power of the evil one. Now, if our government is a secular government, then we have to understand that that applies to them, that there is power being inflicted upon our government by the evil one who has influence on the world around us. We have to be aware of these things and understand that spiritual warfare is real and that it doesn't just affect individuals, it affects institutions as well. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, I don't deny that there are definitely some believers in politics But I think we can safely say that the vast majority of people who are in politics are not going to the scripture every day to try to find out what's the best way to make sure that the laws of the land are just and righteous. We have to understand that some of those who put laws upon the people have a great hardness of heart. And they would often be happy to instruct you to do what God does not want you to do. And then again in 1 Peter 5. Peter outlines for the leadership of the church how they are to lead, and he does so by contrasting Gentile secular leadership to the kind of leadership that a godly man should have. So we are not to be overseeing people as God's leaders in the church under compulsion, meaning it shouldn't just be do what we do because it's our job, or we have to, but we should do so willingly as as God would have us do as an honor and as a gift from the Lord, that we should not lead for, for shameful gain and in such a way that we might fill up our pockets with cash or exploit others and their giving. But rather, we should serve eagerly 
with a, with a joy in giving to the church and serving them and, and, and applying our lives and ourselves to their well-being and their growth. We should serve not domineering over those who are in our charge like the world is often doing, but being exemplary to the flock of Christ. So we should be asking people to do what we do. And then we should be living according to the word as an example to others so that when you imitate us, you're actually imitating Christ. So in light of these things, we have to expect that worldly leaders will at times be dishonest to us, friends. We can expect that worldly leaders will often allow their hearts to be drifted away by by the, the prospects of gaining money and financial riches because of the way they treat people and, and enact their policies. We can prepare ourselves to face a domineering display of civil power every once in a while where our government tries to force us to do things that it doesn't have the right to force us to do. And that means that we are, if we are responsible, if we are clear-minded, then we should not take all that we are told by our government at face value. But instead, we've got to be discerning and careful about the evidence that we can see. Let us, as God's church, guard our hearts appropriately. Let us understand the difference between the voice of our good shepherd and the voice of a hireling who does not have a great love for God's people. And so let's think about this in terms of what we're dealing with today. Is the virus something that we should be terrified about? And this is relevant to us because terror has powerful impact on the people who feel it and experience it. If we allow ourselves to be in fear, we are not going to make good judgments about how we must carry ourselves according to the glory of God. And so I want to share some facts with you today that we can take some confidence in. And these are things that we have observed as your elders over the the months that we want you to be aware of so that you can properly ground yourself in the foundation of Christ which does not shift, which is not crumbling beneath your feet. It is steady and sure. We can say with great confidence that fewer people than are being reported are actually getting COVID. Meaning that it seems as though the whole world is getting sick. But right now, the fact of the matter is, while there is very real threat of this virus, people are getting sick and having to deal with it. It's nowhere near to the scope that that the media is, is reporting it to be. At the end of August, a New York Times piece, and now New York Times, if you know it, is very liberal and is not inclined to uh, to shade things towards the conservative side or the Christian side of things. A New York Times piece by Apurva Mandavila brought to light the fact that the testing procedures for COVID are producing a lot of false positives. And that's because of the tool that they're using to test for COVID is being set to a sensitivity level that is much too high. Now, these tests being used will, by design, amplify genetic matter in a sample that is taken from a person who's getting a test. So if you've had to have one of those tests, they put a swab up your nose, they swish it around, they take it and they use that matter, they, they, they analyze it to see if there are traces of the COVID virus in that matter. In order to see if it's there or not, they have to amplify the biological matter. In the tests that are being done right now, the cycles that are used to amplify that matter are being amplified more times than a normal test would be given. The standard amplification factor for tests like this is 30 to 35 cycles. That means if you've got just a little bit in you, then it probably won't be seen after 35 cycles because you're not really sick. If you've got a lot in you, then it'll be detected within 10 or 12 or 15 cycles, but they give you a a degree of, of safety and cycle up to 35 just to make sure if you've got a little bit of it in you, then you'll show up as positive. 
The COVID tests that are being commonly used right now run 40 amplification cycles, which is five times greater than what is accurate from a medical point of view. And those tests do not tell the doctors how much COVID was present. They only say that it was present. This explains to us why there are so many people who are testing positive and are being told, you're just asymptomatic. You don't have any symptoms. You're not sniffling. You don't have a fever. You haven't lost your sense of smell and taste. Because these asymptomatic people don't actually have the virus, but they have such a small, very little trace of it in their system that it was amplified 40 million times, and they found that tiny little trace in their system. That doesn't mean they have it. That doesn't mean they've even had it before. It means perhaps that a little germ got into them and was defeated by the immune system, and they're fine. But these people are all being counted as having had COVID. You might ask, well, what about deaths? Front page news this week was one in 1,000 Americans have died of COVID. Merry Christmas. That was the, the, the front news article. But is it true? Is the mortality rate of the virus really that bad? The Center for Disease Control tallies death statistics year by year. And the standard operating procedure is to list primary cause of death on a death certificate and then up to three contingencies that may have contributed to the death of that individual. Now, the way that COVID deaths are being tallied is regardless of whether that COVID shows up on the death certificate as the number one cause of death or one of the three contingencies, it's being counted as a death by COVID. So if you died of pneumonia and you happen to also have COVID in your system, you're a COVID death. That doesn't seem very honest to me, and I have no doubt that that is producing a a number of supposed deaths in our community that is far greater than is actually uh, happening because of COVID. I want to share this story with you. One of our uh, oldest members, Joan Bell, praise God, is finally home. We thank the Lord for that. She spent, I think, close to 20 weeks in the hospital because she was having respiratory issues. Now, she went into the hospital because her lungs were not working properly. It was not because of COVID. Joan got COVID in the hospital. Despite the masks, despite the gloves, despite the gowns, she got COVID there and she beat it. Now she came very, very close to death, not because of the COVID, but because of her respiratory issue that's been a deal for her for years now. If she would have died from the respiratory issue, which has plagued her for so long, just the fact that she had been tested positive for COVID would mean she would have been listed as a COVID death and that would not have been accurate. She's not the only one that's experienced this. So we have to take these numbers with a grain of salt. Considering that is true, looking at the numbers in Contra Costa County, friends, we have 1.2 million people in Contra Costa County. And in the month of November, when the virus was spiking like mad, do you know how many people were counted as COVID deaths in this great big county? Less than 20. Less than 20. Let's rejoice in that. That is great news. Now, those numbers are up a a, a slight amount in December. I I know we're over 20 already, but we're most of the way through the the month. But think about that in terms of perspective. That means that more people are dying of car accidents in our county than are dying of COVID. Do we need to be gripped by fear? Do we need to be so afraid everywhere we go and look at other people as if they are carriers of a disease rather than seeing them as human beings? The CDC has reported in August that 94% of deaths indicated to be COVID deaths have comorbidities present. That means that only 6% of people who have died of COVID only had COVID. 
only 6%. Now, that does not mean that 94% of people who died with COVID didn't die of COVID. There's probably a good amount of those that died primarily of COVID, but the way they're tracking COVID keeps us from knowing if the COVID was the real cause for their deaths. So this helps us to understand how you can't take what is shared with you in the media at plain face value. There's been some very interesting preliminary statistics from the CDC that have shown that deaths which are usually strongly consistent from year to year in categories such as heart disease, lung disease, cancer, and diabetes, those are four of the main categories which people die from each year, that typically year to year, those categories don't fluctuate very much at all. They might go up slightly as the population increases, but they stay steady. So far, preliminary, and I know this is preliminary, so we still have to wait and see how things turn out for the rest of the year, but preliminary statistics have shown that in each of those four categories, the number of deaths is significantly down. Now, why is that? Is that because less people are dying of cancer? Does that mean that people aren't dying of diabetic complications? Or does it mean that people are still dying at the same rates, but their deaths are being counted as COVID deaths, in which case we would have a much more fearful response to this virus if we think that all these people are dying of COVID, when in reality they're dying of the same things that they have been dying for for the last several years. I'm not saying this to make us flippant about the virus. We have a sister right now that I prayed for earlier, Liz, who's battling it. We've got a brother and sister in Wyoming right now, Jen and John Ryder, who are battling it. It's a serious thing for those whom it impacts greatly. But we do not need to be under the oppression of a fear that is driving many to treat each other as if we are not brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are simply the means to death. And that is such a shame. It is sad to see that happening. The solutions that are being presented to us, wearing masks, social distancing, and locking down society, at least what has been deemed non-essential aspects of society, have not stopped a spike in cases in our area. Now, I'll, I'll admit, right about the beginning of November, I started to think that perhaps the masks were working. I began to think that because... I wasn't having allergies like I was before. And not too many people I knew of were getting common colds or flus. But as soon as the cold weather came, regardless of the fact that everyone was wearing masks, and believe me, in our area, people are very diligent about wearing masks. When you go to the store, people are putting their masks on before they even get out of the car to walk to the door. If there's a model community anywhere in America about people wearing masks, I would say it's this area. If there's an opportunity for masks to really curb the spike, it would be here. And nevertheless, the virus seems to be growing anyway. Now, I I understand that some would say, well, if we didn't have masks on, it'd be through the roof. But our numbers are not absolutely that different from areas where people are not wearing masks that diligently. What I'm trying to say is our faith should not be in a mask. Our faith should be in Jesus Christ. Our faith should be in the fact that our God is sovereign over all these things, that it's not shutting down society and completely disrupting people's lives, which is going to bring about a solution to this problem. Masks and distancing and shutting down society are man's attempts at solving this issue. But ultimately, God is going to be the one that solves this issue. We should expect worldly leadership to be in opposition to the things of God. And when they are, we need to carefully consider how to follow God's lead instead. While the world trembles in regard to this virus, we urge you, church, do not let the news, do not let the culture set your state of mind. Remember and commit to memory, Philippians 4, 8 through 9, which is finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is of any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So if your phone buzzes four or five times a day to tell you just how bad things are with a little news update, it might be time to silence that notification and instead determine to put your mind on the words of Jesus Christ to remember that God has brought his church through much worse situations than this, that he is sovereign, that he is good, and he is not dropping the ball right now. Christ is doing exactly what he has designed to do. And this is not at all about ignorance. It's not about hiding from what the virus is. It's a call to put first things first and to identify the fact when the voice of hirelings is not telling us the truth. We've got to be honest with ourselves and we've got to do the research instead of just believing what is fed to us all the time through media. Do not let the news cycle shake your hope in Jesus. Do not forget the sovereignty of God in the midst of all these things. Remember that a God who allows sickness and hardship is not an unloving God. Okay, think about that. God is not in any way unloving just because he's allowing a virus to come and impact society. In fact, we do not deserve good health as sinners against God's law. We do not deserve a smooth life. And we should take that to heart. Consider the wisdom that chapter 1 of Job gives to us where he says, Naked I came... From my mother's womb, naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's just lost all his possessions. He's just lost family that was dear to him. He doesn't see God now as a bitter and vengeful God who, who has no right but instead pushes his force, uh, forces his will upon people in an unjust way. He doesn't see God like that. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the next chapter, he loses his own personal health. He's stricken with boils. He becomes an anathema to society. He is miserable and uncomfortable and sick and suffering. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. What a suggestion. Curse God and die. But he said to her, and this is the words of one who is suffering and in the midst of it, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, God determines whether we receive blessing or not because none of us has earned it, friends. That's what grace is. It is an undeserved gift. And so if God so chooses to let us be healthy, then praise God for that. If God should ordain for us to go through a trial and a sickness, then let us not crumble at that. Let us recognize that he is still in control and that he is going to love us through it. And perhaps you will grow in ways in that sickness that you would not have grown if you were strong and able-bodied and had the illusion of self-confidence and self-control. God uses these times to give us a reality check and help us to see we need Him. The lives that we have are infinitely easier than they should be, considering the degree to which we ignore God's Word and sin against Him. So let us marvel, church, at the generosity of His grace. And remember that God allowing a virus to impact the world does not rob Him of His graciousness. The solution to the problem, guys, is not... Science it is not vaccines. It is not reimagined societies. It is not PPE. We will learn what we need to learn in this season. His church will glorify him to the extent that they are powered to do so by the Spirit. And then God will take us to the next chapter of his story.
And so, while we go through this experience together, friends, be careful to care for one another. Be careful to look out for those who are sick. It was so, so encouraging as our sister Liz needed a nebulizer, which is a device that helps you to take breathing treatments at home, that I was able to reach out to several of the people in the church and several people got back to me and said, we've got a nebulizer, we'll give it to Liz, we'll bring it to her. That is the church being the church. That is the love being showed to brothers and sisters who are in need. So care for one another. Stay connected to each other. If we isolate ourselves for our own personal safety and the church suffers because we're not there to care for them, what good are we doing to the body of Christ? If you're sick, please protect your brothers and sisters. Stay home. You don't need to be spreading the virus to people. Even if it's not the virus, stay home. Give yourself a rest. Be in in the word on your own. Watch the live stream, which is available to you. But protect your brothers and sisters by being cautious in that way. Do not shrink away or let your health, which is not guaranteed by God, keep you from being who God has called you to be. And so, friends, we don't have a magic pray to pray, prayer to pray over you today that's going to keep you from getting COVID. I, I guarantee you that more of us will experience it before this season is done. That's how viruses work. We don't have the capacity to eradicate viruses easily from this planet. It's very rare when that happens. So we will experience it. But what I can encourage you is this, that your God will continue to be the mighty and loving and gracious God that you need through that time and that he will glorify himself in so much as you refuse to be gripped by the fear of this world and you trust in the Lord God and glorify him despite the season that we're in. So we thank you, church, for being willing to listen to, uh, to what we had to share with you today. We're pretty late right now, so I'm going to ask the worship team if we can just close with a word of prayer. Is that okay? All right, okay. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll dismiss you. Lord God, we thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would give your leaders of this church humility. Help us to be gentle as we shepherd this flock. God, we do not want to make decisions that would put our people in jeopardy. But at the same time, we don't want to encourage a spirit of fear that has caused so much heartache and despair for people, Lord God. This last song that we sang, Glory in the Darkest Place, was a very important reminder that just because many are happy during the holidays doesn't mean that everybody is. There are many who are jobless, who are despondent because they don't know how to take care of their families right now. There are others who are isolated from those whom they love, who cannot go and spend time with them, who cannot be near to them because they're afraid of getting infected. There are those, Lord God, who just have heard so much of this news again and again and again that they can't think past it and the fear is overwhelming to them. So, Lord God, I pray that you would have mercy on our weakness, that you would lift us up in your strength, that you would give us a discerning mind that can see more clearly what's really going on here, God. We want to honor our government. Please help our governmental leaders to be led by the truth of your word. You have put them in a position to let your law be be on display and to let your goodness keep wickedness from spreading. But Father, they're not perfect people either. So we ask that you would give us patience, help us to be discerning about when to stand and when to simply do what we're told to do. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be considerate of one another and that, again, graciousness would define our interactions. Father, even after this presentation, people will not see totally eye to eye on what's going on or the severity of this virus. And that's okay, Lord. Help us to continue to be brothers and sisters of love and truth and to strive together, Lord God, despite disagreements that we may have about the way that we perceive current in, in the current environment and the current issues of the day. 
And so, God, we thank you that you are with us, that you abide strong in our church. We pray that you would continue to give us the freedom to worship like this and that you would open that door for other congregations who have yet to return to it. We praise you, God. Please bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. And I think our benediction is particularly relevant this morning. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole body, soul, mind, and spirit be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who has called you is faithful. He alone will do it. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. We'll see you again soon. God bless you. You are dismissed.